Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing good. It's gotten a lot warmer here, so I'm happy. Nice, nice. And in, speaking of warm, in Santa Barbara, California, we have Anne Levine. Anne, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for coming back on. We've received tons of great feedback about your uh, appearances on the show, and people were clamoring to have you back. Um, this time of year, especially, we're dealing with some interesting issues as people kind of sort through offers that they might have received to law school. Um, so we've got a bunch of questions today from listeners about uh, deciding what school to go to, uh, visits to schools, all sorts of data questions. I think we should just go ahead and dive right in. Um, so the first questions on the agenda here, student asks what factors we should assess when deciding on a law school is there a methodical way we should go about this? Should we create a spreadsheet to compare the schools? And then there are a couple questions here about the importance of clinical offerings, course variety, student organizations, specialties at schools, specialty rankings. That's a ton of stuff, and Anne, I'm sure you have a lot of great thoughts. So uh, what do you well, think? Well, I hope so. So let me let me actually start with the easiest parts of, of that long involved questions. I love the questions, are specialties important? Okay. Um, the reason is that way back when I was director of admissions at law schools, we would create great little brochures and we would say we had specialty programs in pretty much anything in which we had five or more classes on the subject. Um, it was definitely a marketing thing, okay? But the, the number one thing that I think is important here is are specialties important? Well, are they important to you? Do you have an area of law, you as an applicant, have an area of law that you know 90% likelihood this is why you're going to law school, this is what you want to do? A good example of that is often intellectual property law. Someone who knows that's what they want to do, they have a background in science, math, they um, have maybe already been um, past the patent bar, been patent agents, then so then for that person, is specialty important? And the answer is, as is most things in law school, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Number one, um, if you already have a strong background in IP law, then you probably don't need the specialty quite as much. You know, mm -hmm. you've already got it on your resume. You've got the knowledge, right? So then you can look more to other things like reputation, cost, locality. We'll go into those shortly. Um, the other thing that I've seen is that obviously Santa Clara, you know, up by you, Nathan's a good example. A lot of people go there because of the IP law focus. And that's great if people are into IP law. However, it also means that what a third of the student body, let's say, is also into the exact same specialty you're into, which means there's more clamoring for those opportunities, whether they're classes or clinics or research positions with faculty. It's It can be a little harder to distinguish yourself. Whereas if you went to a school that wasn't necessarily going out of its way to attract IP law people, it'd be a lot more, a lot easier to be the standout IP law person. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. It's kind of like being a big fish in a small pond. Which I'm a big believer in, to be honest. So I think that's definitely something to consider. Um, also, the other thing with specialties is a lot, other than IP, a lot of people change their minds about what they want to do. You know, uh, from applying to law school to finishing law school, people change their minds. And some of that is based on just what job opportunities present themselves while in law school. Uh, you know, you might think that you're going to do 
one thing. Let's say you think you want to be a prosecutor, but then you get this great job at this firm you really like doing insurance defense and you decide you really want to work for that firm when you graduate, you know? So I think you have to be really sure about a specialty to choose a law school for that specialty is the bottom line. And clinical offerings and course variety student organizations, I love this. So um, all law schools have clinics, okay? They have to. So, and at most law schools, everyone who wants to do a clinic gets to do a clinic. And at most law schools, you only get to do one, basically. You know, that's all you really have time for in your schedule. So um, I wouldn't pick a law school for that unless we're talking about some very specific clinics at some very top law schools. I think there are other things that are more important. I think student organizations can be important because um, you want to make sure there are people with, that you feel comfortable with, that you're not the only one of something. Um, that can be a big deal. And I think that goes right into visiting a school. Um, I really think visiting a law school can be a make it or break it thing. Um, and I encourage it. I, I, I encourage people to put money in their application budget for visiting schools. I think that this is a huge deal. Um, for example, I had a client who his top two schools right now are Cornell and UCLA. He's an East Coast person. And he didn't think he'd be enticed by you know, his idea of what Los Angeles was. And he went out to UCLA for Admin Students Day this weekend. And he was like, oh my God, now I have a tough decision. I really loved it, you know? Yeah, um, right. And I've seen it happen the other way that someone thinks that let's pretend um, Boston College is their number one school and they go visit it and they don't get a good vibe. It makes a big difference. So I would say that even more important than the clinical offerings and the specialties is the vibe you get when you go. Just a, uh, a, a quick warning. I, I totally agree with you. I think that visiting is, is important. But you also, um, I, I noticed the other day that uh, UC Hastings, my beloved alma mater, uh, had a admitted students event this week. And it was at the San Francisco Ferry Building. The and, whole thing was there? Uh, I don't know. But there was at least a reception at the Ferry Building. That's OK. Sure. I, I'm not saying it's wrong for them yeah. to show people the ferry building, but I do think that if you only went to that admitted student reception it's, it's at a the dog and pony show. ferry building, the ferry yeah. building and the tenderloin are two extremely different places. Absolutely. Um, one, you can get fresh produce. Just kidding. Um, yeah. The, uh, the thing I would say is this, that you have to understand that admitted student days are dog and pony shows. And just because I say go visit a school, it doesn't mean I think you should go for admitted students day. I think there can be a lot more value in going on a random day where there's not a dog and pony show going on, where you go sit in on a class, you talk to students who haven't been handpicked by the administration, and you see what a normal day looks like there. I don't see a lot of value in going to admitted student days to meet other admitted students because chances are the people you meet aren't going to end up yeah, going to right. school. So I, I agree with you. I think, you know, I think people are savvy. I, I would, you didn't put this on your list, Nathan, but I would just say this. Even if schools have welcome messages for parents, I don't like parents to go to these things. And I would urge people to leave their parents at home uh. for a number of reasons. One is that you're a grown-up. You want people to see you as a grown-up. You're going to law school, for God's sake. You're meeting people who are going to know you as a lawyer. Like, you don't want the first impression to be... Parents. The other thing is, parents. The, if you're negotiating scholarships, or you know, you don't want the law school to see you as that person who, you know, still relying on mommy and daddy. I just think stand on your own two feet. I just put in that little aside there. 
That's that's really interesting. Um, to go back to something that you said just a second ago, I love this idea of not going on a uh, official campus visit, but going on an, an unofficial campus visit. Yeah. And this is really easy to do, isn't it? I mean, oh, if anybody contacted, yeah, if you contacted me or you or Ben, uh, I'm pretty sure we could connect it's you not necessary. To, they don't need us. They oh, don't need us. They can they do don't it need anyway. Us. You call, this is a great thing you raised. It's really difficult. You call or email the admission office of the school, and for some schools they have the sign-ups for it online, and you say, I, I'm an admitted applicant, or I'm a waitlisted sure. applicant, or I'm an applicant, and I'd like to come visit, and you arrange a time, and you sit in on a class, and some schools allow you to meet with an admission uh, uh, officer, some don't provide that, but often it happens informally. Don't call and ask for an interview. They'll all say no, okay? But no, this is standard school stuff. You go, you're, you're an applicant. You go visit a school. I mean, um, people know you can do this in college. I don't know why they don't understand you can do this in law school. Interesting. That's, that's great. I mean, I guess I was suggesting doing an even more informal visit than that, which is like if you want to visit uh, UCLA, you can talk to me and I can connect you to a student who's at UCLA and then you can get the real inside deal rather than going through the admissions office. Yeah, but of I've course, going, going through the admissions, through the admissions, office, admissions office for a couple reasons. Okay. One is if they haven't made a decision yet, you want to show interest right. and it's okay. a chance to get FaceTime, okay? Especially for waitlisted applicants and people whose applications are, are pending. Also, you want to negotiate school scholarships, um, getting in front of people and creating that face-to-face -face connection and showing interest is crucial. And um, there's, they're not putting on a dog and pony show for the tour. You know, for the tour, it's, it's a student giving a tour and you sit in on a class, you can talk to the other students next to you in class, you can hang out in the lounge and the, you know, student areas and, you know, talk to students. So it's not, it, you don't have to go undercover and there can be <laughs> a lot of advantages to going officially through the admission office. Okay, make, makes a lot of sense. Um, before we leave the clinical thing behind, I guess I wanted to tell one more horror story. Um, it, at, at Hastings, again, they had a clinic called the Hastings to Haiti program. And forgive me if I've told this story before, but the Hastings to Haiti program, they make a really big deal about it. They have it all on the slick, glossy brochures that they publish, and they talk about all the good work they're doing and how if you come to Hastings, you know, you'll have the opportunity to participate in this awesome program. Of course, there's 500 1Ls. Anybody want to take a guess how many spots there are for 1Ls in the Hastings to Haiti program? This was a few years ago. Probably in a clinic. Well, there were, it's not a clinic. It's a it's okay. a visiting program. Anyway, right. there were three spots for 1Ls, two spots for 2Ls, and one spot for 3Ls. And <laughs> so, so if you know, not everybody wants to participate in the Hastings to Haiti program, but a significant number of people did want to participate in the Hastings to Haiti program. And there were apparently 30 people trying out for these three spots as 1Ls in this Hastings to Haiti program. So if you're making your decision based on clinical offerings or on these other special programs, you might want to ask the follow-up question of Absolutely. just how many spots there are available. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. Um, anything else about clinics? Anything else about specialty rankings? Oh, rankings. Uh, um, <laughs> are we going there? Um, I, I think I would say this. I, you know, the first question you asked, I think, at the beginning um, that I skipped over was, what factors should I assess when deciding on a school? Okay. And obviously, we could go through that for hours, and I don't want to do that. And I, I do write about that quite a bit in the books. But I would say this. Um, location is important. Cost is important. Even if you're a trust fund kid or someone's writing the check, you know, you could use that money maybe to buy yourself a house, you know. So think about cost. 
obviously reputation is important, but um, I put this on my Facebook the other day. I, you know, I'm not the hugest fan of everything that's ever said on above the law by any stretch of the imagination, but I thought it was pretty funny um, that Ellie over there recently, uh, when the rankings came out, said, and this is my alma mater, like they're, just because uh, University of Miami is ranked 63rd and Florida State is whatever it is, 53rd or whatever, uh, there's no difference between the schools, you know, once it comes down to, to cost and offerings, right? I mean, that you have to look at what's really a meaningful difference in the rankings. Yeah. Um, that you don't choose a school because it's three above another school. You might choose a school because it's, you know, one's uh, in the in the top 100 and one's not. One's in the top 50 and one the next one is 80, you know. But you don't really, it, it, location, think about location. Because what a lot of young people don't think about, I think, is that where they go to law school is is very likely where they end up. They might meet their life partner in law school. They might, you know, that's where they're going to make their friends, get their jobs during summers. And it tends to create roots. And so you have to, you have to put a lot of thought into that. I think it's something a lot of people overlook is location. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about cost. And if not, it's been talked about to death, thankfully. Uh, people are no longer ignoring it. But I, I think don't ignore the feel of the school. And, for example, if you're used to beautiful weather in California and then you find yourself in Boston with the weather <laughs> they've been having on the East Coast this year, that can be really brutal to um, – your outlook and ability to cope and therefore ability to do well in law school and therefore ability to transfer to another school back home. So just keep that in mind when you're making decisions. Yeah, make, makes a lot of sense. Um, this was not on the agenda, but since the new rankings are out, is there anything interesting about the new rankings that you want to talk about? I did see a tweet from you. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the yeah, way, if you want to follow Anne, she's at Anne Levine on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. So I haven't studied the rankings yet. Disclaimer, they just came out yesterday, but I did have someone freak out yesterday about, well, maybe they don't care about getting off the wait list at University of Michigan because they went down two points or whatever. It's like, oh my, oh my God. God, it's still University of Michigan. They still have how many people who've been clerks for the Supreme Court? Like, geez Louise. Like, um, I think people have to get a grip a little bit. Um, a lot of people, a lot of my clients are freaking out. Well, um, will this mean I have a better chance of getting off the wait list at a school because they dropped in the rankings? Well, you know what? Honestly, maybe. Maybe other people will be scared off, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but really, you know, you, you have to remember that the rankings change. And this year, my understanding, and again, I haven't done my in-depth study yet, but my understanding is that they didn't let the law schools get away with as much in terms of employment data. And so that skewed some things. Some schools that have gotten advantages in the past by finding positions for their graduates were perhaps punished a little bit this year. I don't think that really applies to the top 14, but it probably applies elsewhere. Um, also, you have great additions to the rankings, like UC Irvine, you know. Um, so, so that skews things a little bit, too. Yeah, Irvine was ranked for the first time. I guess they came out uh, just one step ahead of UC Davis. What are they, around 30th? Around 30, Something like I think. That. Yeah, yeah, 30. And um, honestly, it's a law school that, in my opinion, is going to be top 20 before you blink your eyes. Um, they're only going up. So I think that that will cause some shakeups in the next five to 10 years. Cool. Um, you mentioned data, employment data, and I think this moves us on kind of nicely to our next uh, question. So this is lengthy, bear with me. Does the school's 509 accurately portray the data? I think we should probably just explain to people what 509s are to begin with. Or is there more to the story? Uh, for instance, I've heard that one school I've applied to has such a high percentage of full-time bar required employment because many of the students have existing strong connections in the legal field, i.e. their parents are lawyers. Um, are there other things like that that aren't transparent, like schools hiring their own graduates? I think this is something that you were mentioning, Anne. Um, 
let's 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 stop there. Let's start what, there. What do you okay. think? Yeah. There's a lot of good places to go with all those good questions. Um, I'm, I like to start with the easy questions, <laughs> as you can tell. So one of them is, um, I have a very hard time believing that any one school has any higher percentage of parents who are lawyers than any other school. Um, I just have a really hard time buying into that. And just because their parents are lawyers, many parents are not actually who are lawyers are not, not actually working in the legal field at this point in their careers. I talk to a lot of parents who hire me to work with their kids who are, and the parents are lawyers and many of them are like now working in finance or running foundations or what have you. I mean, I have a very hard time believing that that would skew any particular school's data, number one. Okay. Um, okay. So on to other things. Um, the 509 reports. So this is, I, I just can't believe that people don't use this. I mean, I'm on 509 reports pretty much daily. Um, you just go to the ABA website. Uh, you can just Google ABA 509 reports. You can choose any school and, and, and year, but obviously we want the most recent year. In this case, 2014 is the most recent year of data. And uh, this is pretty much the information that used to be in the nice big fat books, the LSAC ABA official guide to U.S. law schools, which I used to live by as a Bible. So now the information is there. It has a lot of good stats on schools, um, you know, number of minorities, outside GPA, but what I'm using it for mostly this time of year is um, the list of how many transfer students that each school takes and from what institutions. So it doesn't tell me what their grades were or their class rank at those institutions, but it'll say to me, for example, um, USC took six people from Loyola Law School. I'm making that up, but it's probably pretty close. Um, so, so that's really informative data. So Everyone should start there. It's a great starting point for data. I have no reason to distrust the data. I understand there are ways to manipulate it, but I have no reason to distrust it generally. Um, and if people don't know about law school transparency, they should, um, which is a website um, put together by, I believe, graduates of Vanderbilt Law School who um, completely on their own um, goodness of their hearts, spend a great deal of time, uh, although they accept donations, <laughs> um, putting together data, uh, what they consider more real data on employment for different law schools, and they rate the schools. So definitely check out law school transparency for employment data. I, I want to get away from data for a minute okay. because I'm not a data-driven person, although I know the market is very data-driven and certain forums thrive on data. I believe they have to be prepared to hustle to get a job. Oh, yeah. And in fact, in everything in life, the three of us, we hustle to make a living, right? You hustle to, <laughs> to do that no matter what your profession, whether you're a hairdresser or whether you're going to law school. You need to count on the fact that you have to make your own way. Anyone who goes to any law school relying on the fact that someone's going to hand them a job at or before graduation is completely kidding themselves. Um, and one other point, you have to be prepared to work hard. I have a client who went to New York Law School who's got his dream job working for um, a major broadcasting network because he hustled. He worked his way in. He proved himself. Um, I, I, had, I had one other thing I wanted to say about that. When you're looking at hiring data, you have to remember that it's the culture in certain regions to, that law firms do not hire until you have bar pass. So um, some regions, particularly on the East Coast, I think generally have higher employment data within nine, six and nine months because law firms will hire people before they have their bar results. In California, where we have a very low bar pass rate, no law firms will make offers until you have bar results uh, generally. So that's, that's just something to keep in mind when you're looking at, at the bar data. 
Oh, okay. That's very interesting. Um, what do you think about this idea of schools hiring? So, so you're saying, the, do you think the 509s are more subject to gaming on schools hiring their own graduates? Or do you, do you think law school transparency is a better source to look at? Well, that? I think they're just different sources. Okay. I wouldn't necessarily hang my hat on either one, but I think they balance each other rather nicely. Um, you know, the ABA data is the data that matters for rankings. Okay. So if it's manipulated in one place, it's manipulated in the other. Um, but the rankings place weight on the manipulation factor, whereas the 509 data is just data. That makes sense? Okay. Okay. Because it, it's not weighted data that you're looking at on the ABA report. You're just looking at straight numbers. Whereas the rankings for U.S. News weigh that data. How important is it? And so that, you know, so they're making a judgment call on the value of the data more than, um, you know, there's no judgment call being made in the 509s. Okay. 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 So that would be a difference. Okay. Um, uh, so follow-up question again, data. We'll, we'll move on from this quickly. But uh, My least favorite thing, data. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, a student wants to know if the bar passage rates are manipulated. Uh, do some schools kick out poor performing students in order to inflate their bar passage numbers? Um, so there are schools, especially lower down on the rankings totem pole, that have high um, attrition rates for um entering students. They're generally the schools that take chances on people with very low LSAT scores. And then when those people don't make it through the first year, then they are academically dismissed. Um, but that's generally not happening later on at high numbers, because if people make it through the first year, they generally make it through the second and third. Um, but yes, it's something to look at. But I don't think that's what skews bar pass. I think um, there are things that schools could do, but I'm not going to accuse any particular schools of, of trends of doing this, but schools can encourage people to take the bars in other states. They can ask them not to take the first bar after graduation. They can do things like that, but I haven't heard of any students doing any, I haven't heard of any phenomenon like that. Um, and in fact, when I worked um, at one law school in California, you know, 15 years ago, um, in our scholarship contracts, we would ask we would tell people the first bar they had to take was California so that um, our high LSAT people were taking the California bar and counting toward our bar pass rate. Um, I don't know that that school requires that anymore. I haven't seen that in any scholarship contracts for a while. Interesting. Um, can we talk about, sorry, Ben, did you have a question? Oh yeah, sorry. I apologize, Anne, to go back here, but at the very beginning of the 509 thing, you, you talked about how you look at transfer rates from one institution to another. And I, I was just curious, why why is that so interesting to you? Okay, so what's in <laughs> a few things. So I do work with many people who are trying to transfer law schools. Um, some of them are clients I helped initially get into law school, and some of them are new people. And so when I'm talking with someone about their goals, um, I like to be able to, to look and see how feasible the goal really is. So here's an example. If I have someone from Golden Gate who tells me they want to transfer to Harvard, I can easily look at Harvard's 509 and see whether anyone was able to transfer from a school from that's from Golden Gate or from a similar school that, as Golden okay. Gate and mm -hmm. be able to really say to someone, you know, uh, no, it doesn't tell me that the person they took from Northeastern to Harvard was number one in their class, but I can pretty much surmise that that's what happened. But it gives me a good idea. Um, it also tells me how many transfers a student takes. Like if you look at GW, you know, <laughs> um, they're taking a lot of transfers. It also, um, transferring, I mean, I could talk again, another subject I could speak for hours on, but transferring has become even more of a play for law schools because they don't offer scholarships to those individuals and it helps make up for all the 1Ls they do have to offer scholarships to. 
Um, so, you know, it, it's a boon for schools. So are you saying that if a school takes a lot of transfers like GW, that's a, that's a, an indication that that's not good or, or I don't I wouldn't say I wasn't passing judgment. I, I was simply oh, okay. saying that it's a great opportunity for people who want to transfer that schools are looking for transfers because they've got to make up the money from the scholarships. Okay. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as a, as an indicator that that school is kind of smart. I mean, especially in a environment where law school applications are way down isn't this a, a great way for schools to recruit by, yeah, by letting people transfer up? But, you know, it's not so easy. I mean, the schools that people are trying to transfer from are really putting the pressure on their people. Um, you know, a school, I've heard of schools recently making people meet with the dean before pulling transcripts to, um, you know, uh, where law school professors don't, as a matter of policy, not all of them, but individually might decide that they're not going to help their people transfer because they want to keep the good students. So there are some is, people who aren't allowed to write on to um, write on to law review if they pulled their transcripts to try to transfer. So there's a lot of pressure from the schools to keep people from transferring. So it's not all great. You also have to, a lot of times, repay scholarship money, right? Is that standard? I haven't seen that being, I have not seen that in a clause in a long time. Um, It it was the case, I would say, 15 years ago, but I haven't seen a a loan repayment clause in a a scholarship offer in a long time. Those things are impossible to enforce. Okay, okay. I mean, horribly. Yeah, I haven't seen that as being um, something that people are telling me they're concerned about. I, I see it more the, the the internal pressure from the school to make it difficult. I see. Okay. Anything else about transfer students, Ben? Any other questions? No, no other questions. Cool. Um, moving on to the next issue, uh, we talked about campus visits a little bit, but specifically, are there any telltale signs that we should be looking for on a campus visit, like? How the students interact with each other? Are there any particular questions that we should ask? Are there any particular administrators like financial aid people, admissions people? Any any real targets for while you're there on that visit? That's a great question, and I have a few thoughts. and And some of this will depend on what the purpose of the visit is. For someone who's already been admitted, it would have a different focus than for someone who is waiting to be admitted or on a wait list. Okay. Um, obviously, if you're in that group or you're waiting for a decision, absolutely go to the admission office. Um, and if you've been admitted, absolutely go talk to someone financial aid or career services and ask questions. Um, sitting in on a class is so helpful. Uh, you really get a sense of, you know, are, are people paying attention? Are they engaged? Are they, um, you know, back in my day, we were passing notes, but today they play on Facebook and text. And so you can sort of see, are people engaged? Are they interested? Um, you have to remember some, you'll, sometimes you'll sit in on a class for a good professor and sometimes not. I mean, every school has good professors and and less good professors. So I wouldn't judge too much by one particular professor, but certainly the level and engagement in class is, is a good indicator. And just talk to people, ask them like, what's their favorite thing about the law school and what's their least favorite thing? I mean, if their least favorite thing is parking, okay, I can, can decide, can I deal with problems with parking? And if their thing is that people aren't, you know, the administration isn't accessible, well, that's that's a problem. Um, so you have to figure out what's important to you in that respect. And you want to look around and see, is this a place where you can see yourself and be comfortable? It's interesting. Um, back in November, I went back to my alma mater, University of Miami, where I went for both undergrad and law school. And I 
had a meeting with the dean of the law school and all of these things. And I was trying to look at it as though I were applying today. What would I think? And really, it's quite the same as it was when I when I did apply 20 years ago. But I would say this, that I did notice walking around campus how different campus life is today than it was when I was in school. I mean, people would be sitting together waiting for the shuttle, but no one would be talking. Everyone would be looking at their phones. And like people would be sitting at tables outside and with groups of people, but not talking and looking at their phones. And I don't know if that's a universal thing at schools now, but um, gosh, does that interrupt the whole process of what school should be, in my opinion. So I would look for places where people actually seem to enjoy each other and interact with each other and not just with their phones. Unless you like to be on your phone all the time, in which case I guess you should look for people being yeah, on their phone Yeah, but then you're not the someone time. who cares if administration is responsive to you. You're <laughs> right. just there to go in and out. But I think, you know, one of the things that makes law school um, <laughs> doable is the friendships you create, right? I mean, that you're all in it together for better or worse. And, um that's an important part of the experience. Those are the people who you end up practicing law with. And, and those are connections, you know, lifelong friends. I mean, my, my brother went to NYU law school. Every single person in his wedding was a friend from NYU law school or, or undergrad. You know, I think that that's um, a great benefit to attending law schools. And certainly you can go into law school and have no interest in making friends. But um, being if you're someone who that's important to make sure that you see that kind of environment on campus. Great. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, another question about visits. I want to visit a school that would cost about three hundred dollars in airfare, hotels uh, plus airfare uh, plus hotels, rental car, etc. Can I get a school to cover at least some of these expenses for me? And it depends. Um, some schools do this, but usually they offer it. Uh, you would know that they offer it. I guess it doesn't hurt to ask. But here's what I would say. In the scheme of everything that people are paying for LSAT prep and applications and everything else and the huge amount they're going to pay for law school, $300 is not where I would spend my time negotiating. I would spend the $300 and then say to a school, you know, I'm so interested in the school. I spent $300 to come here. You know, that's a lot of money to me. What I'm really concerned about is paying for law school, you know. But it's one thing you can negotiate with a school to cover $100 of your expenses, woohoo. But I'd much rather you spend your precious uh, capital um, and influence asking for a lot more than that. Uh, You know, and I think anyone who doesn't go visit a school over $300 is missing the point completely. I think that's a great point. I never even thought about using it as a negotiating chip. Can we talk about negotiating offers? Yes. General strategy, do we start negotiating from the lowest ranked school up or do we start from the highest school up or how do we do do this? How do we go about uh, asking for more money? There is one way that I believe is the most successful way to negotiate. Oh, I heard pens come out. Um, The most successful way to negotiate (laughs) is to have narrowed it down to two schools and to be able to say to school number one, you're my first choice. You've offered me $10,000 a year. Thank you so much. The problem is that my second choice, similarly ranked school that would cost me less in living expenses, offered me $20,000 a year. If school number one came up and offered me $20,000 a year, I would absolutely send my deposit and withdraw all other applications. Pretty strong negotiating, okay? What doesn't tend to work 
is when you say, okay, I'm just going to ask everyone for more money, amass as much money as I can get, and then decide how I'm going to negotiate. Because then what you're doing is coming back to a school twice, right? So if you're pretty much asking all of your schools for more money, and some of them come up and some don't, and then you decide there's one school you really, you know, you really would want to attend if they came up in the money, you can, you know, you've already asked them once. And they're not going to come up again. So you really, you know, the best time to negotiate this is right before deposit deadlines. And then again, before second deposits are due, especially if you've gotten off the wait list somewhere uh, in the meantime that you really want to attend. That's a strong negotiating position. I really caution people against gaming the system. I mean, the law schools are mostly smart. Okay. They're savvy. They know that you're asking everyone for more money and that you're playing that, you know, you're playing USF against Santa Clara against whatever, you know, they know this and don't think they don't talk to each other, even though they're not supposed to. I, I mean, they do. I once worked with a client about two years ago who told the school she was not going to attend. She was withdrawing her application because she um, got a great scholarship at the law school, basically, let's call it law school down the street. That person called up his, the dean of admissions at that law school, called up the law school down the street and said, hey, Joe, um, this client, uh, this applicant, is it true that, you know, you gave her X dollars? Well, I know it's not true. I only gave her Y dollars. Like, they talk. Yeah. So they shouldn't, but they do. And so I would just be careful, um, you know, you're entering a profession where integrity is and should be very important. So conduct yourself with integrity. If you're true, if you would truly attend a school, if they gave you a certain amount of money, tell them, um, tell them this is going to be the deal breaker for you. Um, that's the, that, that's the way to negotiate a scholarship. Um, the law schools get inundated with these requests in the last couple of years, more and more, and they're inundated every day with these requests. If you can do it professionally and effectively, it'll take you a lot further. Can can we go back to the $20,000, $10,000 example you were talking about? Yeah. Would you suggest um, talking to the your second choice first to see if you can get that $20,000 up even more, I guess. Um, maybe if you have negotiate. something you could negotiate it with, right? If, like a third school. If or there's something? a third school that you're like, look, I've narrowed it to my top three. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in your school, but you know, my my third choice offered me twenty five thousand a year, and if we could even the difference a little bit, it would make my decision narrowing it down to my top two a lot easier. Yeah. And then, of course, you could bring that offer up um, to the school number one. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, generally things don't happen that perfectly though, Ben, you know what I mean? Like yeah, that would take a lot of ducks in a row lined up and schools getting back to you in the time frame that you want. I would also say this at a lot of school scholarships is a continuing conversation because scholarship offers will change and um, morph, especially after deposit deadlines, when schools see who they've offered scholarships to, they will also be able to see after a certain date if you've double deposited at schools, and that might influence schools to either tell you to put up a shut up or to offer you more money to get you to commit to them. So th- mm-hmm. this is a continuing conversation that schools can have with applicant with with admitted students. Okay, you mentioned double depositing. You think that this is a viable strategy in some cases? It should be. Um, if you haven't had the opportunity to visit your top two schools, um, and um, you should uh, cover your bases until you can visit, you are allowed to double deposit. I believe the date is June 15th where the schools can, the put up or shut up date, where schools can actually withdraw their offers if you don't um, take one deposit away. 
a lot of people are very confused about deposits and they think that that means they have to take themselves off of wait lists. That's not what a deposit means. Deposit is holding your seat at that school. And then if later your preference changes and you decide to go to a different school that you've gotten into since submitting your deposit, all you do is risk losing your deposit at the first school. Not a big deal. Putting down a deposit doesn't obligate you to sit in a seat unless you've signed a scholarship contract or an early binding decision contract that says otherwise. There's not a limit on the number of deposits you can do, right? Um, I believe that there is. I'm not looking, but I, I believe you can double deposit um, to a certain date. I mean, look, I guess you could send deposits to three law schools, you know, April 1st, then, mm-hmm. you know, start to pull them out and say, actually, I've decided to attend a different school and narrow it down. As long as by June 15th, you're only, whatever the date is, I'm using June 15th, um, is where you can only be deposited at one school. As long as at that time, you only have one deposit, I think you're fine. Mm-hmm. But but it, most people aren't sending three deposits. I think people do send two um, to hedge their bets until they have a chance to visit um, or to see about scholarship negotiation. But um, I don't see too many people who are putting down three deposits. Those deposit deadlines themselves are sometimes negotiable, aren't they? They can be, although I've seen a lot of schools say in their letters that they're not going to be extending deadlines um, for deposits. And I think that's courteous of this, you know, that the, I understand why the schools are doing it because they need to know. They need to have their numbers by a certain day so they know whether they can go to their wait list. So uh, in most cases, uh, you can ask, but I've seen a lot of language in letters saying that that, that deposit deadline is non-negotiable this year, especially for scholarship applicants, for scholarship students. Hmm. Interesting. Why? I wonder why that would be. Well, what do you mean? Think about it. You're a smart guy. What do you think? Uh, it's early in the morning. Come on. You haven't had two espressos by now? Um, <laughs> I know. I'm used to Nathan after a beer or wine. Okay. So here, I'll spell it out <laughs> for you. I do get sharper. It's true. <laughs> I'll spell it out for you. Um, okay. Schools use deposits. Why? They use deposits to see how many seats they think they'll fill. Okay. They use deposits to see, are their numbers pretty even male and female? Are there, um, what are their median and 25th and 75th percentile LSAT and GPAs looking like? How is the class shaping up? From there, if they go to the wait list, they can see, okay, what we really need is people with higher GPAs off the wait list. What we really need is more Latino students. What we really need is this. And so it helps them prioritize what what they need off that wait list and who they need to recruit. And by knowing whether they have scholarship funds available because other people have not reserved seats who've been offered scholarships, then they know they can use those dollars to recruit someone that they need to balance out the class. How about that? Makes sense. You mentioned the uh, percentiles. I, I would, my guess would be that if you are above the seventy fifth percentile on LSAT and or GPA, obviously that's when we start thinking that you're a scholarship candidate or a likely scholarship candidate. Yes, unless yield comes into play. Uh, so, um, if a school thinks that you're not really gonna go there, if they offer you, you know, if they admit you off the waitlist or offer you scholarship, then they're not gonna bother. Georgetown is the number one culprit here that comes to mind. Um, they take people binding early decision in the low one sixties with high GPAs, but they make everyone in the mid one sixties and high GPAs wait nicely on their holder waitlist. Why? Because they think those people end up going elsewhere for the most part, and they really want them to fight for those seats to protect their yield. And the people whose LSATs are high for Georgetown, you know, the high 160s, low 170s, they're put on a quote-unquote preferred wait list and have to sort of fight a little bit if they want a chance at the money because they, you know, Georgetown knows those people are unlikely to actually choose Georgetown in the end. 
So I wouldn't, I don't think that, I think the scholarship dollars at this point in the year are more likely to be used to fill the seats for sure than to get people who probably in the end will end up going to University of Michigan or NYU. But Michigan fell two points in the rankings. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go again. Um, Yeah. That's pretty funny. When you were talking about Georgetown, you were saying like if they had a low 160s and a high GPA, they're going to accept those people in the high 160s and so forth are, I mean, not obviously you have to look at every individual candidate, but I guess I felt like the, the LSAT numbers were shifted up higher than that. I, I guess there's quite a range for Georgetown or, or all these schools. Maybe I'm just not thinking about it. Georgetown correctly. especially has, has some pockets um, that are really interesting. So what I've seen this year from my own clients is that my clients, I, I am not looking at the exact number, but I think I had eight or nine clients with, um, high 150s, low 160s, and high GPAs who applied binding early decision to Georgetown and got in. And Mm. I have quite a few clients who are excellent Georgetown people in D.C., have 165s, you know, in that 164 to 166 range, and um, good solid GPAs and good resumes, good internships who are being held or waitlisted because in the last couple of years, those people have also gotten into, you know, a lot of those people have gotten into the Michigans and UVAs and Penns a little bit and even Harvard and NYU and Columbia a little bit if they're really outstanding applicants. So I think Georgetown's hedging their bets. And yes, there, there are different groups of admission, especially at Georgetown, you know, um, and they're doing these different kinds of interviews. So if people don't bother to participate in an interview, that can skew things too. Yeah. How does how does early decision affect scholarship offers? My, my sense is, is that it would decrease it, right? If it's a binding early decision, that would be um, a very rational presumption, and it's one that I write about. You you have to apply binding early decision with the um, assumption there'll be no scholarships. However, that's not what we're seeing. Um, for example, um, Nathan and I share a client who had a very low LSAT for a top 20 school, applied binding early decision, um, and he got in and then was also given $15,000 a year, even though he was bound to attend, even though his LSAT was low for that school. Um, hmm. And I see Georgetown giving uh, nice scholarships to early decision applicants, too. I just had a client yesterday inform me she already knew she'd been admitted binding to Georgetown, and then she was given their global law scholarship yesterday. Um, so that is happening to the school's credit. Why, why do you think the schools are doing that in those search situations? They, they, they want people to feel really good about their decisions. You know, mm-hmm. they don't want people to transfer the next year. They, they want people to feel good about their decisions. Um, I think that's a big part of it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see that. The transfer thing does make sense to me. Otherwise, I, I just it doesn't seem to make any sense. Why would you recruit a student, pay for a student that you can get for free? But I guess the, the transferring out thing you could maybe tie the golden handcuffs on them a little bit by giving them some money. Yeah, and, and also, you know, people want happy law student, happy students and happy alum. You know, they don't want bitter alumni. And the school is, I think, making a very good, sound, long-term decision from, you know, I, I come from a very higher ed background. My father was a dean of a school, of schools. I worked at the schools. And I do believe that schools, for the most part, they're not, um, you know, cog, you know, wheel and cog operations. They do want that happy ending. You know, they do want people who are proud of their alumni association who contribute to the school. And I think that, that this all comes into play with that. They're setting an, up an early 
um, early, happy, fuzzy, good feeling. And, and I think, I think it's smart. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, and you mentioned your book earlier. Uh, I just want to give that a plug, The Law School Admission Game. I, I give a copy of that book to every single one of my students. Um, I just don't think you're a sophisticated applicant until you've read that book. So um, if you are new to Anne, please go get that book on Amazon. Um, Anne's website is lawschoolexpert.com. And again, she's Anne Levine on Twitter. Anything else, Anne, that no, you'd like to Thank you for that. Apply? That was really nice. I would also say that Ben's students are about to get a huge shipment of books because it looks like I'm going to be coming out to D.C. in May. I'm, I'm working it. I'm negotiating with the hubby. Um, <laughs> but it uh, looks like I'm heading out to D.C. in May. So Ben's students will also get to get a free copy of the book. And um, I'm always happy to answer questions from readers, my email address, and, and I have a contact form on the site and I respond to everything uh, on the site and blog myself. So feel free to ask questions. Yeah, awesome. I'm very excited to have you and it'll be fun. And, and I've given out your book before and people definitely love it. So Thank you. No, I'm excited. I, I always love talking with you guys and answering uh, questions and however I can be of help in the future, let me know. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ann. Yeah, thanks. Hey everybody, it's Nathan and Ben. Um, if you want help from us, please email help at thinkinglsat.com. You can use that address to send questions for the show. You can also contact Ben and I directly through that email address, help at thinkinglsat.com, or just visit our website, thinkinglsat.com. Um, I offer classes and private tutoring in San Francisco. I also offer an online program and one-on-one -on -one tutoring via Skype and I have a bunch of LSAT books on Amazon. Just look for uh, Nathan Fox LSAT. Ben? Yeah, I offer uh, live classes in Washington, D.C., as well as one-on-one -on -one tutoring. Um, I also meet with people through Skype all the time for the one-on-one -on -one tutoring. So. And again, uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. You can reach both of us. Thanks for listening.